Support for this podcast and the following message come from Humana. Employees are the heartbeat of your business. That's why Humana offers group dental, vision, life, and disability plans designed to protect them. Exceptional service, broad networks, and modern benefits. That's the power of human care. I'm Mike and Scott, and this is a podcast extra from The Pulse. In the early 2000s, Jeff Horwitz, like millions of other people, joined a new site called Facebook. Back then, you know, it was, you could follow people, you could see their content, you could like poke them, you know, uh, (laughs) poke has been retired. Yes. You know, it was just a sort of very basic thing. I mean, it really truly was just a basic platform where people had profiles and interacted and posted things. It struck me as being sort of a little bit frivolous, but obviously also useful for connecting with friends. But in the 20 years since Facebook launched in February of 2004, it's transformed from a quirky site for college students to a global powerhouse, one that has had major impacts on everything from how we feel about ourselves to the outcomes of elections. The version of Facebook that I used back in the day, it it bears very little resemblance to current Facebook. Jeff is a technology reporter for The Wall Street Journal. He worked on the award-winning series The Facebook Files, and he's the author of Broken Code, Inside Facebook, and the fight to expose its harmful secrets. His reporting draws on tens of thousands of Facebook's own internal documents from whistleblower Francis Haugen. In the book, he talks about how the company operates, and he explains some of the major changes Facebook made over the last decade. A few things happened. First, it got vastly more public, and that was by design. Uh, The goal was to increase the amount of content and consumption on the platform, and you needed more public content. And the second thing is that the guts of the platform were just completely replaced from just being like, okay, you see, you know, the content of the friends you follow and the people and the accounts you choose to to look at uh, in chronological order to... Meta's systems basically show you whatever content is most likely to produce engagement. And that could mean watch time, it could mean how many comments you produce, how many posts you yourself produce. Basically that this thing could be optimized um, using black box methods to produce the sorts of behaviors that Meta wanted to see from its users, which generally correlated with more usage and more advertising revenue and so forth. Jeff said it took a while for people, including himself, to realize the profound impact these changes had. I was covering politics in Washington, D.C. during the 2016 election, and it was very apparent that something really weird was going on in social media. I don't think anyone really understood at the time what was happening. And, you know, in the immediate aftermath of the 2016 election, everyone sort of recognized that that had been a very weird election and that social media, perhaps even more than Facebook, Twitter, had been, you know, sort of a driving force in that campaign and that it had been a really odd one. And I think nobody really knew what that like why that was and, you know, sort of the first effort was just like, well, it must have been some foreign entity, you know, manipulating it, right? It must be the Russians. Right. And I guess there was, at the time, nobody was quite sure, like, is this just showing what people really feel? Is this just 
is social media just a reflection of who we are or is it making us who we now appear to be? Right. And this is, I think, you know, for many years, this was kind of Facebook stock response was, yeah. that, well, like, you know, if you have a problem, take it up with humanity. Um, and <laughs> the whole idea was that this was a very democratic system, that it gave voice to people who didn't normally have voice in, you know, public spheres. And that, you know, sometimes that was going to be a little unruly. But obviously, you know, I think anyone who's committed to democracy would think that, you know, giving more people a voice is a good thing. That said, that really wasn't what the company was finding internally its own products were doing. Uh, after the 2016 election, the company itself was pretty shaken by, you know, just trying to figure out like, why discourse on the platform had gotten as bad as it had been, why fake news appeared to be overtaking real news, questions of that nature that just simply they, you know, never thought to look at before in, in any serious depth. And what the company internally began to document over and over again was that the way that it was designing their products wasn't just simply allowing the most popular content to bubble to the top. Uh, and sometimes that was just weird, unpleasant stuff. It was actually changing what content succeeded uh, and changing how people communicated. And so one recurrent finding was that the platform had basically been built in a way that rewarded rage-inducing content, um, what they called rage bait uh, or hate bait. And, you know, it turns out that nothing gets more attention than, you know, sort of an outlandish position or a public fight. And, I mean, you, can, you, can, you know, this, this is the way things work in, in offline life too, right? If you're at a cocktail party and, and all of a sudden voices are getting raised in a conversation nearby and someone's starting to drop uh, swear words, you stop your conversation and you listen to what's happening over there. Now, obviously, in offline life, we have mechanisms to, like, determine that that isn't a good form of attention. And, you know, there are sort of ways to squelch that. Facebook didn't have any of that, right? So the, the platform basically viewed any engagement as good engagement. And um, that led to some really weird behaviors. One of the things that was documented internally is that foreign political parties were actively changing their platforms, not just their, their talking points, but their platforms to be more combative and more hostile, um, because that was the only way to get distribution on the platform. And I'm wondering if you can dig a little deeper on how the platform amplified rage-inducing content. Because, you know, if you look at your Facebook feed, a cute puppy also gets a lot of engagement, right? Or a cat video gets a lot of engagement. So how exactly did the ragey stuff rise to the top? Yeah, absolutely. You know, this is something that Guy Rosen, Facebook's head of integrity for many years, said that, that uh, you know, the way they rank content was great for cat videos, but perhaps not for things like politics. It's probably a pretty safe thing for the world when the thing that gets sort of the most attention and the craziest video involving a cat um, is getting sort of promoted as heavily as possible by the platform, right? It's, you know, this is a way to just surface entertaining cat content. But when it comes to, to things like politics, the question of like, does it garner attention isn't necessarily a great predictor of value and, you know, like, it would be as if um, the craziest headline in the newspaper was whatever went first, regardless of whether or not there was a story to back it up. 
So there was no, there was basically no editor at the helm. It was just all raw emotion in a way, like. Yeah, no, no editor and no breaks, right? Mm-hmm. If uh, it turns out that things that were false, they outperformed because it turns out things that are false, one, they tend to be more entertaining than things that are true uh, when they spread around. And two, if people were, you know, responding, saying, you know, to a, a post saying like, this is, you know, just absolutely fabricated, like what a horrific lie, that was good engagement, that would just mean that the original post would get spread even further, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. And so this is this is kind of, in some ways, it was a system designed with a lot of accelerants and absolutely no breaks. And, I'm, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking back to the first time when I really noticed the absence of this, quote, editor that you and I as journalists were used to editors, kind of having a say and shaping the content and weighing this side and that side, right? And the first time I really noticed this absence was, I think, after the Boston Marathon bombing. And I started getting all these images, completely unfiltered images of the attack and the victims and what had happened to them. And I'm like, whoa, what am I looking at here? This is horrific. Why is nobody like cropping these images or why am I seeing this, right? But then as time went on, I got used to seeing people die in videos on Facebook or I it's just like your tolerance also completely changes. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, look, even I'm sure, you know, and as Facebook would note, many of the people sharing this stuff, they didn't have bad intent. You know, I think a lot of people thought it was, you know, important to share sort of the, even the goriest content. But you know, and it's not as if the line of work that we're in, um, aka legacy media, doesn't try to gin up uh, engagement and, you know, attract as much attention as possible. It's just that there is a human in the loop, as you point out, right? And that there are both some sense of institutional standards and, and also perhaps some sense of personal responsibility, maybe even shame. Yeah. <laughs> if, uh, if one goes too far. And this was a system that was built without that, right? Jeff said for a long time, discussions about Facebook circled around what people can and cannot post and how these rules are enforced. But he says maybe that's the wrong question to ask. We like really focused on the question of like, well, you know, what rules should Facebook make? Should it take this particular piece of content down? As opposed to the the flip side of that question, which is what does Facebook promote Mm-hmm. How can it be gamed? And what does sort of the system, the company set up, like whose interest does it serve? And if you can, you know, explain a little bit more how that promotion happens. Because in part, it is based on my likes, right? And what, what I guess the algorithm can garner about me and who I am and what I want to look at. But who else is making those decisions? I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not a who else. There <laughs> is no one. Um, yes. I mean, this, this is, it, and, it's, and it's not just likes either, right? Uh, it's, do you pause um, when scrolling? That is a, a positive signal. Do you uh, put an emoji response? That's a very positive signal, right? Basically, any form of engagement is good. So if I, if I just get you worked up, um, even if you're unhappy about it, that is generally going to be read as like a positive signal uh, to spread that content to more people who don't necessarily even follow it. 
And the research internally demonstrated very clearly that the things that traveled the best around the platform were not, shall we say, the cleanest, highbrow, um, most appropriate content. It was uh, kind of the opposite of that, in fact. So it was, it was just really sort of like what gets attention in a split second was really the thing that drove, um, like that changed basically what information was going to travel, what was going to succeed on the platform. And, and so you'd have, you know, whether that was going to be fake headlines or like gross medical images or really, really provocative, um, you know, firebrand politics. It, these were the things that were going to get rewarded and there was no human in the loop. Every once in a while, they would look at what the top content in the platform was and be kind of appalled. But this was just not the way they thought of the world, right? Like the whole idea was that they were going to focus on maximizing engagement and they actually viewed not paying any attention to sort of what they were promoting as almost a virtue more than a flaw. That's Jeff Horwitz, technology reporter for The Wall Street Journal. He's the author of Broken Code, Inside Facebook and the Fight to Expose Its Harmful Secrets. Coming up, a former employee comes back as a consultant and is shocked by what he finds. This product that seems to be not just distorting user behavior, but also resulting in a truly terrible experience for teenagers. That's still to come. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Breast cancer cells multiply faster because of CDK4-6 proteins. But what if blocking those proteins and stopping runaway cell division was possible? Dana-Farber scientists laid the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, new drugs that are increasing the survival rate for many advanced breast cancers. Dana-Farber's momentum of discovery keeps finding new ways to outmaneuver cancer. More at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how her team makes an impact. We always do what we like to think of as actionable science. So the work that we do makes its way to things like nutrition and physical activity guidelines for cancer.org, where millions of people come each year to learn about how they can better prevent cancer. To learn more, go to cancer.org. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Noom. Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. I'm Mike and Scott. This is a podcast extra from The Pulse. Facebook is turning 20, and we're talking about how it's changed our lives, culture, and politics. My guest is Wall Street Journal technology reporter Jeff Horwitz. He's reported on the site for years. His new book is called Broken Code, Inside Facebook and the Fight to Expose Its Harmful Secrets. I asked Jeff about money and profits and how that changed the way the platform functions. There is this strange thing about Facebook where for a long time profit seemed to be the word that you didn't talk about because it was supposed to be about, you know, we build tech and we want to make money so that we can make more tech. So when did that change? I mean, I, I think 
look, there's a case being made that anyone says they're not motivated by financial concerns across the board is uh, deluding themselves. I think for a long time, it, it truly was verboten to like bring up the revenue impact of a product change inside Facebook. Like that was viewed as crass. But what was acceptable throughout, and I think this is where perhaps a bit of, shall we say, blur enters the picture, is talking about things that would make the product more useful or better. And the thing was that the way that Facebook determined what was better was what made people use it more, right? These things were used synonymously. Is a product improvement was something that made engagement go up. And of course, if you're making engagement go up, you are also boosting revenue um, in you know, the overall majority of time. Mm-hmm. So I think there was this weird dichotomy where you had Mark Zuckerberg saying things like how Facebook was going to end all of terrorism because people who connected with each other couldn't possibly hate, you know, and sort of really driving the staff with this kind of almost like utopian vision of a globally connected society, while at the same time the platform was like basically building algorithms that would maximize engagement in ways that even the company itself didn't understand how that fully worked. All you'd be doing was basically telling a a very complex computer system to maximize certain variables, right? Like how much time was spent, how many likes were given, and then, you know, sort of letting it basically do whatever it discovered was the best way to do that. And I'm wondering, after all the work you've done, you know, in reading your book and your your writing about Facebook, the, the leadership at times seems like shockingly naive and sort of, you know, has this utopian vision and then at other times so cutthroat and so just <laughs> not in tune with any higher ideals. So in the end, how did you walk away feeling about those aspects of the people in leadership? I mean, I, I think one of the really fascinating things about just this whole period and in which social media kind of did remake society um, and, and arguably still continues to do so as we're heading into the 2024 election um, is that the company really did, you know, it had access to all this data about how it was altering human behavior um, on, you know, on its products. And it really did sort of intentionally blinder itself to that, to to its effects, right? It was always like, well, you know, we can't say that this is actually changing anyone's opinions or, you know, anyone's behavior, even though they could see that they were, say, massively boosting highly polarized content or giving extreme distribution to some of the, you know, the craziest conspiracy theories out there, because again, those things did great on engagement. It was a very strange thing in that, you know, you hear Mark Zuckerberg talking about Facebook as if it was democratizing all of technology and and giving everyone a voice when at the same time the you know internal research was demonstrating that in fact the most popular voices on the platform were frequently those that were you know just gaming the hell out of the algorithm it was uh, almost as if the company was like unwilling to recognize the ways in which it actually had changed communication did it at times also feel like they were no longer quite sure how to bring this horse back into the barn? I think some things were hard because there had been sort of bridges that had already been crossed and perhaps burned. So, you know, when they were trying to figure out how to deal with misinformation and partisan publishers, they really only started doing this work in like 2018 or so. And by the time that they did it, 
they were already these massive constituencies of partisan publishers, both left and right, though more on the right, that had turned Facebook into their megaphone, um, in part via like basically manipulative tricks like broadcasting the same material from a hundred different pages controlled by a single entity, right? Which would trigger the algorithm to think, oh, this is bubbling up all over the place. I should really start, you know, pushing it broadly. And so basically cheating had become rampant, but the problem was is that the cheaters were some of the dominant voices. And so there were a lot of internal debates as to like, well, you know, how do we roll that back? And if we roll that back, are we inappropriately punishing certain publishers? And there really was, a, I think, a lot of deference. You could say either this was due to, you know, an admirable neutrality or simply a desire not to rock the boat. Um, there was a lot of deference to allowing existing practices, even when existing practices were, were pretty bad. I asked Jeff about some of the people who informed his reporting on Facebook, who supplied him with inside documentation. One of the people he profiles is Arturo Bahar, who worked at Facebook between 2009 and 2015. He left to pursue other opportunities, but then a personal matter brought him back to Facebook. After he left, his daughter became um, a bit of an influencer. He and her uh, restored old cars. And the abuse that she received from men, um, and keep in mind, this was a, a girl who was 14 when she was you know, starting to get traction on Instagram, was just absolutely vile. And you know, he was started peppering his, his friends at the company who we still know with like, you know, why is this happening? Like, what's going wrong here that you guys have built this system where adult men are just, you know, constantly barraging his daughter and her friends with just terrible stuff. And they invited him back to do uh, some consulting work for a couple of years in 2019. And so he goes back into the company and looks at sort of where the product is and is just appalled that changes that were already underway on when he was on his way out have sort of led to this this product that seems to be not just distorting user behavior, but also resulting in a truly terrible experience for teenagers, right? That just normalized the idea that young women should expect to receive uh, misogynistic comments and, and sometimes pornographic material from, you know, strangers across the internet. And in fact, that Meta was going to be literally recommending those young women to the people who were going to be sending those notes. And you know, he spent a number of years, uh, two years inside the company, basically trying to document how bad things were, uh, how bad the actual user experience was, um, and took those complaints all the way to the top. And, well, let's put it this way, when he left, he just certainly didn't feel like the company was on the right track. What kind of response did he get when he presented the data? I think he was surprised to realize that everyone knew, or not everyone knew, but that people at the top either seemed not concerned or, you know, it just wasn't a priority, right? The company was much more focused on its own needs, which, again, you know, perhaps shouldn't have been a surprise. I think, you know, Arturo considers himself to have been a bit naive in hindsight in, uh, you know, in thinking that, you know, maybe maybe they just didn't know. But he left the company. He actually, um, in a very pleasant thing for a reporter, he got in touch with me shortly after Francis Haugen and, and you know, leaked all of the, uh, the Facebook files documents to the journal and we, we published our work. And he was emphatically not planning on being a whistleblower at the time. Uh, you know, he made very clear this was going to stay off record forever. Um, he just wanted to sort of compare notes and sort of 
try to walk me through his thinking. And the reason that was is because, you know, he still had hope that maybe the people, his colleagues inside, were going to make progress. And they laid a lot of those people off. And that is sort of begins how uh, the story of how Arturo ended up, you know, being featured in a front page story and then testifying in front of Congress regarding the um, prevalence of bad experiences for teens in particular, for teenage girls on the platform. And the company was also aware of the negative emotional impact that being on Facebook and Instagram had specifically, again, on young girls. Yeah, and this is a this is a thing where the debate about sort of social media and mental health is kind of disappointing. There's a few things that seem extremely clear. One of them is it's really good for people to talk to their friends. And, you know, messaging with people is, uh, you know, sort of an unambiguous positive. And, you know, there's absolutely many good uses of social media for teens. The question is, are those things that the platforms are amplifying and sort of really investing in, or is that kind of not what the platforms are really working on? And in the case of Instagram, internal research from the company's well-being team concluded that Instagram really had, unlike even other platforms like you know Snapchat or TikTok, the focus wasn't on interpersonal communication or uh, performance. It was on the body in space. And that, you know, it turns out that sort of the, both the mechanics of Instagram and the culture that it built up around it seemed to really emphasize physicality and appearance. And that the recommendation system, and again, this is the, the same engagement-based system we were talking about with politics, just in a different format or just in a different sort of field, were um, if something gathered a strong reaction from a user, let's say, you know, someone saw you know, a friend of a friend who was just like way prettier than, than she was in her mind um, and, you know, just sort of obsessed about it, that was something the platform was going to reward. In other words, making, it turns out, people feel insecure turned out to be, per the well-being team's, you know, own analysis, something the platform was sort of actively promoting in many instances. That's Jeff Horwitz, technology reporter for The Wall Street Journal. He's the author of Broken Code, Inside Facebook and the Fight to Expose Its Harmful Secrets. Coming up, how Jeff connected with Facebook employee Frances Haugen, who became an important informant. She was frustrated, not quite fully burned out, and wanted to talk to a reporter before she left, uh, very intentionally, because she thought that something really unfortunate was happening at Facebook. That's still to come. This episode's sponsor is PWC, which offers the following message. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. PwC pairs the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations from the cloud, fuel innovation with responsible AI, and detect risks before they become headlines. Human-led and tech-powered, it's all part of the new equation from PwC. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. 
From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me. And I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Mike and Scott, and this is a podcast extra from The Pulse. Facebook launched 20 years ago, and we're talking about how the company has grown and changed with Jeff Horwitz. Jeff is a technology reporter for The Wall Street Journal and the author of Broken Code, Inside Facebook and the Fight to Expose Its Harmful Secrets. A lot of his work was informed by one Facebook employee who supplied a lot of internal information to Jeff. How did you start working with Frances Haugen and get into some of the information she had started to collect on her own? I got in touch with Frances just via LinkedIn. I sent a whole bunch of people notes shortly after the 2020 election saying that, um, you know, I knew that it had been a very long road. And I also knew that the company was about to roll back some of the safety protections they put in place. Um, Nobody really got in touch originally, but Francis responded actually the day that they broke up Facebook's civic team, which was responsible for dealing with sort of negative outcomes on the platform involving, say, politics and public discourse. And, you know, she, I think, and this is a really unusual thing for a source, instead of sort of getting burned out and frustrated and leaving and then thinking about talking to a reporter, she was frustrated, not quite fully burned out, and wanted to talk to a reporter before she left uh, very intentionally because she thought that something really unfortunate was happening at Facebook and that she needed to do something about it. And, uh, you know, she then sort of set about collecting internal records that, that she believed backed up her her belief that Facebook was um, a threat to not just the well-being of public discourse, but, you know, the lives of millions of people around the globe. And you write that when she first said that to you, you know, that Facebook is a threat potentially to the lives of millions of people. You were kind of on the fence about that. It seemed almost a bit too dramatic to you at the moment. Yeah, I, um, and this is, this is after, you know, I, been writing about the company's promotion of hate speech that, you know, was linked to ethnic violence in various countries and, you know, and some of the sort of the genocide in, in Myanmar um, and, and so forth. And it still just seemed, uh, you know, perhaps a little too dramatic, right? Like this platform couldn't possibly have that much power. And, um, uh, you know, again, in terms of the counterfactual of, of what would life be like without Facebook and so forth. I, w I will say that a lot of the stuff she brought out did indicate that the way that Facebook, you know, now Meta is just changing the way we behave and what ideas and which politicians uh, rise is something that it's almost like it's the air we breathe and it changes everything, if that makes sense. So it, it, it's, you know, certainly it's, you know, hard to think about sort of things like January 6th as having happened as they did 
without the platform. Um, not because you know the whole thing was organized on Facebook or some you know such silly causal thing, but just because Facebook was sort of one of the primary vectors for spreading you know, this whole stop the steal idea, the idea that the election had been stolen, which performed amazingly on the platform and for a lot of sort of the mechanics and dynamics that we've been talking about. Francis got thousands and thousands of screenshots for you, all kinds of data and information. If you had to name a handful of things that to you were the most like shocking or damning, what would they be? One of them was just the, you know, we've already discussed this, but just the degree to which Facebook understood that it was fundamentally changing politics and that, that the ways that it had boosted engagement of the sort that it wanted for its own self-interest was just changing what the topics of the day were online. Certainly a second one would be, and this was the first story we ran in the Facebook files, was about the company just explicitly showing favoritism to you know political leaders and the powerful, giving them, uh, in some instances, outright exempting them from enforcement for misbehavior. Um, and, you know, which was just kind of impossible to reconcile with what the company was saying about how it was, you know, this democratic force that treated everyone equally. And, you know, I think in terms of just sort of some of the things, and this sort of goes to Haugen's concerns about safety overseas, the level of disinvestment in safety work in places where people's lives were literally on the line was truly remarkable. You know, one truly horrific incident, this was about human trafficking, um, and it was basically the sale of of maids uh, in Gulf countries, right, which is pretty much modern-day slavery in many instances. And um, the company knew it had a problem, and it had a problem at scale. It didn't do anything about it until Apple threatened to remove both Facebook and Instagram from the App Store because of the negligence involved. Um, and all of a sudden, hundreds of thousands of posts and groups and accounts come down overnight. In other words, it's not that the company couldn't have been doing better. It just simply wasn't a priority. Wow. That's, oof, yeah. And this is, this is really sad, right? I, I don't speak Arabic, to this day, you know, it is extremely easy to go find, you know, using Google Translate and a few keywords, people selling maids on the platform. Um, this is, you know, an ongoing issue. And it can be solved. Um, solved is a big or word. Or at least... But certainly... Um, curtailed. Yeah, I think, I think and this is, this is... So there's two things. One of them is just the investment in, in the moderation. Obviously, in some instances, clearly there could be more. And I think, you know, something that's really worth understanding for listeners in the U.S. is that the version of Facebook that we see is by far the best moderated around the world. This is the one where English and American English, the most investment has gone in, the most the automated systems work the best. In many places, they literally don't have people on staff who speak the languages still. It's one thing to have to be hosting bad content. It's another thing to be actively promoting it and unable to detect that you're doing so. In your mind, what, if anything, is the path forward here? Um, there were, I think, one of the things that was kind of heartening from the reporting, if there's, you know, I think there was a lot of grim stuff, is that actually there were the people Facebook hired who, you know, sort of did the work that Francis Haugen documented and who, you know, many of whom spoke with me, like, they identified 
very real and in some instances remarkably simple ways to significantly mitigate the concerns about the platform that that many entities have voiced. You know, a big part of it was don't amplify stuff if you don't have the capacity to reliably vet it or maybe just don't give hyperactive users quite so much power over what other people see. There are, there are some sort of fairly basic design decisions that were completely feasible um, and in fact had been tested and found to be effective internally. The problem was is that they hit engagement because for you know by the time Facebook started considering its sort of societal impact, it had already was, you know, it was a decade down the road in terms of optimizing via black box systems for, you know, sort of maximum efficiency. And the problem was, is all of these changes that the safety people proposed, they were a deviation from the, you know, the maximally efficient route in terms of usage. And they got rejected. Like literally, you know, and this sounds crazy. Um, if someone, say, came up with a way to reduce hate speech by 20% on the plat, by the spread of hate speech by 20% on the platform, and it was going to do 0.1% damage to usage. That was dead on arrival, just absolutely dead. And, you know, that was just kind of the, the sort of mentality was that Facebook is good and more Facebook usage is always good, is an inherent good. And therefore, like anything that diverges from that is bad. And so, you know, there are, I think, a lot of ways that at this point we could be thinking about social media in terms of like, okay, what is a responsible thing to provide? Let's say to teenagers, right? Should teenagers be seeing the same amplified content that adults do? Should um, politics and health information be treated as the same as celebrity news in terms of what rises to the top? These are like choices that can be made. Uh, it's just that, you know, that hasn't really been asked of the companies by, you know, regulators and governments necessarily at this point. Um, and I think there's starting to be some efforts at that. But, uh, you know, this is still a pretty new technology to some degree, right, in the, in the grand scheme of things. Um, if it's something that has the same impact as fundamental as the printing press was, which I think there's a pretty good case to be made for it, that took a few centuries for Europe to get used to. Jeff Horwitz is a technology reporter for The Wall Street Journal and the author of Broken Code, Inside Facebook and the Fight to Expose Its Harmful Secrets. The Pulse is a production of WHYY in Philadelphia. Make sure to check out our whole episode about Facebook at 20. Lindsay Lazarski produced this podcast extra. Our engineers are Charlie Kyer and Adam Staniszewski. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. 
Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. This election season, you can expect to hear a lot of news, some of it meaningful, much of it not. Give the Up First podcast 15 minutes, sometimes a little less, and we'll help you sort it out what's going on around the world and at home. Three stories, 15 minutes, Up First every day. Listen every morning wherever you get your podcasts.